Well, good evening. It's good to see everyone. Good to see you here live. And I can't see those online, but we're glad that you're here. You can see us. So we're glad that you're joining us as well. Welcome to Portrait of Jesus as we continue to look at the Gospel of John. And we are to chapter 8 tonight, a very interesting 8, very interesting 8, very interesting chapter, uh, Jesus' conversation with the religious leaders and some things he said very interesting tonight. And so we'll begin starting in chapter 1, uh, chapter 8, verse 1. So good to see all of you. Turn over there in your Bibles. If you have, I'm reading from the ESV in case you're wondering again, but uh, your Bibles or devices or whatever you have to study God's Word with, turn there to chapter 8 and we'll get started. Let's pray together. Father, thank you tonight for the opportunity to study your Word together. Thank you, Father, for those who have joined us online, those who are here in person. God, I just pray your blessings upon them. And tonight as we read the Word, wherever we are, I just pray the Word will be powerful. The Holy Spirit will speak to our hearts exactly what you want us to know. Give us insight and give us wisdom in the life and ministry and the teachings of Jesus. Father, help us to be better followers of yours as well. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, let's begin. If you remember last Wednesday night, we closed chapter 7 with Jesus at the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, as it was called. In fact, was celebrated last week from September 20th to September 27th. Uh, Orthodox Jews still celebrate it, and it remembers the wilderness wanderings of G or the Old Testament, rather, in the, in the book of Exodus, and it remembers those and recounts those, and so they will build booths, they will build a, 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 what they call a, a tabernacle themselves that they can stay in at night to remember the wanderings of their forefathers in the book of Exodus as they're going through the wilderness. And so uh, this was a feast of the Jews, one of the three feasts. It was the most popular one, really, because it was more celebratory. Uh, so they would celebrate, uh, whereas the Passover was more uh, ritualistic, and, and uh, they celebrated during the Feast of Booths. It was a time whenever they anticipated the coming of the Messiah, time of water, time of lights, We'll talk tonight about how they would have a light-burning uh, ceremony. They'd bring the torches out. And so, so the, the water and the lights were symbolic of the coming Messiah. So it's not a coincidence that Jesus showed up at the Feast of Booths, talks about Him being the, 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 the living water, and talks about Him being the light of the world. So it's no coincidence Then He did that during the time of the booth. So that's where we closed out with. The Feast of Booths was over with, and now we begin chapter 8. Something else interesting happened the day after the great day of the feast. Now, as we begin chapter 8, verse 1, first of all, I want to mention uh, some of your Bibles may have the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 7, verse 53, through chapter 8, verse 11. Uh, does any of yours, any of your Bibles tonight, those of you who are here in person, any of your Bibles not have it at all? Just skip straight from 752 to 812. Okay, all right, one here, all right. Some Bibles still do that. Do, do any, does anyone have where it's in brackets or it's in parentheses in your Bible? Okay, most everybody else. That's how most Bibles are. It written in parentheses the entire passage. Let me tell you why. Most of the early manuscripts that have been found concerning the New Testament, and there are thousands of them, which is more than any other book of antiquity, most early manuscripts do not include this section. It's not in there, 753 to 811. 
Other manuscripts that do have it put an asterisk beside it. And the reason they do is, is because they feel like it was added later on, maybe by John, but most likely from somebody else, added to the Gospel of John and put in at a later date, maybe 100, 200 years later. Uh, so because of that, they're, they're kind of skeptical of it. Now, some early church fathers omitted it because they thought it made Jesus look like he is approving of sexual immorality. Now, he's not, as we're going to see, but they, but they think it made it look like he was. So they didn't include it. Augustine was one of those, uh, Bishop of Hippo in Northern Africa. Ambrose, Bishop in Milan, 4th century. They didn't include it at all because they thought it made Jesus look like he was approving of sexual immorality. But the passage is in character with Christ. It sounds like Christ. And not only that, some early Christian writers as early as 100 AD did include it. So personally, I think we can accept it as Scripture. I have no problem with it whatsoever, even if it was added later. I don't believe it was, but even if it was, the Holy Spirit is the one who included it in the transmission down to us all these years, just as he did the rest of Scripture. So I have no problem whatsoever including this and accepting it, but I wanted to give that little explanation as to why you'll find a little asterisk beside it or in brackets or in parentheses are omitted altogether. So having said that, Let's start looking now at, at uh, chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. It be, picks up just the day after the great day of the Feast of Booth, so it was just now over. Verse 1, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him. He sat down and taught them. So let me give you the time frame here. The feast is over. Everybody went to their own homes. Rather than going back to Galilee, Jesus just went across the creek to the Mount of Olives, across the Kidron Valley, the, the Kidron River. They call it a river. It's just a creek, and stayed at the Mount of Olives. Did he stay outside? He could have, but most likely stayed where he always stayed when he went to Jerusalem. It's at Bethany, which was on the Mount of Olives at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So most likely went out there, and the next day he went down to the temple which would be two days after uh, now the, uh, the, the, the Feast of Booths, went down to the temple and he began teaching them. And so popular in his teaching at the temple that crowds gathered around him as he taught. Well, the religious leaders, Pharisees and scribes, did not like Jesus teaching at the temple. They didn't like the popularity that he had. So they wanted to discredit his teaching. And they got real sneaky as to how they did it. Look at verse 3. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, teacher, which was sarcastic by the way, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, it's commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say. They're trying to trap him. So let's look at this just a moment. So as Jesus was teaching, scribes and Pharisees came up to him. By the way, they really didn't get along. Scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees 
three religious groups, but they really didn't all get along together. And the only time they're ever mentioned together in the Gospel of John's right here. They would come together to try to get rid of Jesus, but they didn't agree on much of anything else. So the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman into Jesus' midst. Now, embarrassing for her. Hopefully, they thought it'd be embarrassing for Jesus. Trying to discredit him as he taught. Bringing a woman caught in the act of adultery. Everybody's probably gasping as they walk in and they announce what they're there for. And, and trying to, to put Jesus in a bind. If he said stone her, then he would lose the crowd and the a reputation he had of being full of grace. Had he said don't stone her, he would have been accused of not going by the law. Which would have again lost his crowd because he didn't go by Jewish law. Because the law says to stone her by uh, caught in adultery, Leviticus 20.10, Deuteronomy 22.22, both say if you're caught in adultery, man or woman, then you would, stoning was the penalty. So they brought the, the woman in. Verse 6 says, they, this they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Now, before we go to his response, let's talk about this a moment. How did they know she had been caught in the very act? The law said that you could not stone somebody for adultery just based on circumstantial evidence. If you see a man and a woman walking into a bedroom together, that's not enough. If you see them walking out of a bedroom together, it's not enough. It, you have to be caught in the very act. Circumstantial evidence was not enough. So therefore, this law from Deuteronomy and Leviticus was hardly ever imposed. Because usually adultery was a very private act and nobody else was around. So how did they know she was caught in the act? And how come she never said, no, I wasn't? And how come her guilt or innocence was never brought up? And where was the man? It wasn't just women, men caught in adultery, stoning. Where's the man? So theologians think here's the answer. They believe that the woman's guilt or innocence was not in question and she was definitely caught in the very act because she had been set up. It was a trap. They had hired somebody to be the man because he wasn't brought. He was only the woman. Most theologians believe because of all these factors together, they had, their religious leaders had hired a man to commit adultery with a woman. He would not be charged, but she would, and they'd bring her to Jesus because he was the one sympathetic to women in a culture that was not. So they thought, aha, we know she was caught in the very act because we hired the man that was with her. So it looked like an open and shut case. So here's what Jesus did. He did not say, are you guilty, ma'am? Her guilt or innocence is never mentioned. Here's what he did, verse 6. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Now, 
we know Jesus could read and write. How do we know that? Well, many Jews could not. Many Jewish males could not. But we know he could because he wrote here. And he read in the synagogue from Isaiah 61, a later date. So we know he could read and write. And this is the only time Jesus ever wrote down anything. He didn't write books. He didn't leave legacies from writing. He spoke. But he never wrote anything other than here. And so he bent down, and some people see humility in that. Well, he was, hum he was humble, so he bent down. Probably just because that's where the ground was, you know. So, um, but he bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And then it says, and then he uh, stood up, as they continued to ask, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. He didn't say she doesn't deserve it. He didn't say leave her alone. He says, okay, if you're going to, she's guilty. Those of you who aren't guilty, you pick up the first rock. And then he bent down again and wrote a second time. That's significant. He wrote a second time on the ground. And it says in verse 8 and then verse 9, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Here's the age-old question. What did he write in the dirt? Well, there's been all kind of theories on what Jesus actually wrote in the dirt. Uh, some take the word wrote in the Greek language, graphene, uh, which uh, just means to write, but it also it could mean to draw. So there are some people that believe he was drawing pictures in the dirt, doodling to stall for more time to know what to say. Yeah, probably not, but some people believe that. Others believe that he wrote down the actual passage from Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, that condemned the woman and wrote it down. And okay, that's what the law says. And then, okay, those of you who have never transgressed the law, then you cast the stone. Maybe he did write the passage in the ground. We don't know. Another theory is that he wrote the, um, the uh, sentence that would be passed down for such an action. Okay, so they're making the accusation. So he writes in the dirt, uh, death by stoning. And he says, okay, uh, this is what you're supposed to do. You pick up the first rock. It could have been. Maybe he wrote the accusation. Or others believe that he wrote other passages from the Old Testament that would be against the accusers because there were passages that talked about if you brought an accusation against someone, here are all the things you needed to do. So maybe he's writing down what they didn't do that they should have when they brought an accusation. Yeah, maybe. But here's what most theologians believe. Since he wrote twice, most theologians believe, and I'll tell you why they believe it in a moment, is that he wrote the names of the scribes and Pharisees who were bringing the lady for accusation. They didn't tell him their names, but he knew. And he wrote their name in the dirt the first time. And then he stood up and said, those of you without sin, and he called their names, you throw the first stone. And he bent down the second time and out beside their name began to write sins they had committed that nobody knew, but he knew. 
and they go, okay, it's time to leave. Possible. Now, why do theologians believe that? Because the word graphene is the word for write, to write something. But the word graphene is not used here. It's the word katagraphene. The prefix kata, K-A-T-A, is put in front of it, which means to write something against someone. So what did he write against someone? Their sins. So it's very possible that Jesus wrote their names, stood up, and then wrote their, the sins out beside of their names, and one by one, they all left, beginning with the oldest to the youngest. We don't know why the oldest to the youngest. This is what it says here, with the older ones going first, one by one. So they went orderly out. They come by and saw their name. Yep, I'm out of here. Yep, that's my name. I'm out of here. And they all leave one by one. Notice, even the crowd he was teaching, not just the religious leaders, but even the crowd. So they're probably thinking, oh boy, he knows what they're doing and doesn't even know their names. I think I'm out of here too. And they left. And Jesus looked up after he finished writing, and it's just the woman in him. It's not the crowd minus the religious leaders. It's just the woman in him. And he turns to her in verse 10 and said, woman, where are they? Has nobody condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now, the law says that if you are to judge someone, there must be two people present, two, uh, two witnesses against the person present. So after everybody left, it's just Jesus, only one. So that's why he said, I don't condemn you either. Now, later on in the future, she would stand before him in judgment, as we all will. He's not judging her right then. He will one day. But he wouldn't right then. Law and grace must complement each other. And we see that in Jesus here. Now, a lot of people say, wow, Jesus condemned sin. He, can, he, just, he was easy on the woman. He was... He, evidently, adultery is not a big deal to him. He just let her go. No, no, no. No, read what he said. He said, I don't condemn you now either. Go and prove differently. You sinned. Go and don't sin anymore. So, I don't see anywhere in here that Jesus is being easy or light on the woman. He calls it sin. He tells her it's sin. And he says, go and sin no more. Now go to your ne the next section, uh, letter B on your outline. I am the light of the world, uh, verse 12 through verse 30. We enter a section now, uh, verse 12 through the end of the chapter, the rest of our time tonight, 12 to chapter verse 59, and we'll go quickly through that. And that entire section is a discourse between Jesus and the religious leaders. So after the woman left, Jesus then goes back into the outer court, still in the temple area, and he makes a statement, his second of the I am statements. He says, I am the light of the world. And that brings on a discourse about light, about Jesus' origins, and about where Jesus is going and what his mission is. 
And so, <clears throat> excuse me, that will come up then for the, for the rest of the chapter through verse 49. Now, Feast of the Booths, let's go back to that for a moment. If you remember, we talked a little bit about it last week, but light was a major part of the festival just as water was. Light was a major part of the festival. Light anticipated the Messiah. Whenever the Messiah came, the Jews said, he's going to be a light to the nations. So light was a big deal with the Messiah. In the Feast of Booths, in anticipating the Messiah's coming, they would have a lamp lighting ceremony on the first day of the feast. The high priest would bring three large torches, set them in the court of the women, which was one of the outer courts of the, of the, of the temple, set them in the outer court, light the menorah, the Jewish candelabra, light the menorah, and it would light the entire temple area night and day for seven days. So the entire days of the festival for seven days, there would, it would be lighted by the menorah in the outer court of the women. What the Jews would do then, they would bring their own lights. And they would carry, each carrying individual lights, and they would dance and sing around the three larger lights. And it was a time of celebration and joy. In fact, this was one of the highlights for a Jew every year. They loved it. And they loved dancing and singing around the menorah, anticipating the coming of the Messiah. And so it was no accident. The day after, Jesus went to the temple area in the court of the women and proclaimed, I am the light of the world. The Messiah has come. No accident. Now, light metaphor was used all the way through the Old Testament about with God and his people. The Jews thought light meant God's presence. And so, God appeared to them as light. Look at creation. Day one, let there be light. Day four, he created the lesser lights. And then after that, uh, the, he appeared as a flame to Moses. And then after that, he led the people by a fire at night. And on and on, you see light as a metaphor for God is with us. So, whenever Jesus says, I am the light of the world, not only was it Messiah's here, it's God is in your presence. I am God's name. God is in their presence. So, those religions, even today, that say Jesus never claimed to be God, oh, here's another time. And if you were there and you were Jewish, there would be no doubt in your mind. He was claiming to be deity. I am the light of the world, verse 12. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This verse has been special to me for a long time. Uh, I, I know some of you know my story of well, I was called a ministry and I was running from that call and got a disease that almost took my life, the Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, and was taken by ambulance here to Dallas and wasn't expected to live um, and called my family in and wasn't going to live for the night. And I don't want to keep you in suspense. I lived. But, um, <laughs> but as a result of that, in the ambulance ride down there, I knew that I had not followed the Lord uh, and had run from his call for two years into vocational ministry. And I was, I was not conscious through all this, but a few times I was very conscious and remember it all. And one of the times as the ambulance ride from Sherman 
down to Dallas and uh, the lights going and as out and the siren going. And I remember thinking that, Lord, uh, what have I done? I've just I've run from you. I've just kind of blown it. And, and this verse came to mind. I'm the light of the world. If you follow after me, you'll never walk in darkness. And I remember a feeling of hopefulness coming over me of, Lord, this, you're going to give me a second chance. There's a better day coming. I'm not going to die. And uh, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to walk in light, not in darkness. And just the lights of the, of the ambulance reminded me of this. Every time I read verse 12, it always brings that back to my mind. Studying for this earlier this week, and, just, and, and it brought it back to my mind again. It really is true. If you follow after the light, you'll not walk in darkness. And it's the best way to live your life is following Christ. So the Pharisees responded, verse 13. The Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Now, why would they say that? Because the law said in Deuteronomy 17 and Deuteronomy 19 that if something was declared to be true, two people had to say it. Not one. Two had to agree. And if two people agreed, it's right. So they're looking at Jesus and saying, you're only one person. What you're saying can't be true. And Jesus' response in verse 14 was, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from. I know where I'm going. But you do not know where I came from or where I'm going. Jesus basically said, you know, it may be true that only two people are required for witnesses for something to be true. But technically, only one person knows the facts, if they're right or not. And I'm one person, and the facts are, I know where I'm coming from and know where I'm going. You don't know either. I'm sure that went over really well, so they're probably starting to get upset with him at this point. Verse 15. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Now, wait a minute. He does judge people, right? What does he mean? We'll keep going. Verse 16. Yet, even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. So, what he was saying was, judging by, just based on external facts alone, you're looking at me, you're right. I'm not worthy to judge if you think I'm just a man. But if you think I am God... And I have a relationship with the Father as, you know, to, to together with him. We will be the ones you stand before in judgment. So, basing upon your external facts, yeah, I don't judge anybody. But based on who I know that I am and where I came from, yes, I judge righteously. Verse 18. I am the one who bears witness about myself. And the Father who sent me bears witness about me. And listen to their response, verse 19. They said to him, where's your father? Now, that looks just like a question to us. It was a slam. It was a slur against Jesus because all time Jesus was being raised, there were whispers. He's illegitimate. Mary was not married. And they say Joseph's the dad, but well, well, no, we don't really know for sure. And so they thought they would slam him by saying, oh, yeah, you don't even know who your daddy is. Where's your father? So it looks pretty benign to us, but in the Greek language, it was a slam. They were questioning Jesus' father. 
And if you wanted to offend a Jew in those days, you questioned their fatherhood or who their father was. Because remember, genealogies are really big for Jews. And they're proud of those. So if you really wanted to slam a Jewish man, you questioned who their daddy was. Then they asked, where, where is your father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you'd know my father. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him yet because his hour had not yet come. The animosity against Jesus is growing from the religious leaders. Now, why does it tell us he was in the treasury? Because the treasury, it's setting a picture as to where he was. The treasury was in the court of women, right? Where was the menorah? Where were the torches? Court of women. So it's placing for us, the treasury was, it was in the court of women, as you, you, would, you would give, it had 13 rectangular giving boxes that, uh, that with an image of a shofar on each of them. Why the shofar? Because they blew a trumpet when you gave money. Isn't that something? You'd, if, if you gave money and people blow a trumpet and everybody looked, somebody gave money. And they wanted credit for looking to be, to appear religious. And so they had 13 of these set up in the court of the women. So it tells us he was in the treasury to let us know that he was standing in the place where the menorah had been as the light of the world. Verse 21. So he said to them again, again, word that's used there means a pause, but not a break. So there was a break, a pause, and then he starts speaking again. I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Now pause there for a moment. You're a religious leader. You think if there's anybody going to heaven, it's you. Right? And he says, where I'm going, you're not going to make it. And then he said, verse 22, so the Jews said to him, will he kill himself since he says where I'm going he cannot come they think maybe he's going to commit suicide verse 23 he said to them you're from below I'm from above you are of this world I am not of this world I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he you will die in your sins here's what Jesus was saying Unless you believe that I am God, you're going to die in your sins and not go to heaven. Folks, a part of being saved, you must believe Jesus is deity. You must believe that he is God in the flesh, come to this earth. And that's what he was saying here. If you're ever going to see heaven, you must believe that I am God. Verse 25, so they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say to you about and, and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They're really confused. Look at verse 27. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. Verse 28, so Jesus said to them, 
when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know I am He, and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. What's He talking about? He's talking about the cross. When, when you have lifted me up, when you have put me on a cross, then you're going to know I am who God has sent, and I am God before you. Verse 29, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And he was saying these things, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Here's the picture. Jesus and the religious leaders are having a conversation, but there are other people listening. There's a crowd there gathered listening again. And so, as he's saying these things, the religious leaders are totally confused. They don't know what he's talking about. They're thinking earthly. Jesus is talking heavenly. But here's the amazing thing. Even though they didn't believe him, and they were throwing slurs against him, and they were angry, some in the crowd got it. Standing where the menorah was, Messiah, yes, is going to be light, the light of the nations, He's the light of the world. I believe him. And so verse 30 tells us, while he was talking and the religious leaders were getting angry, many in the crowd actually believed. Now go to verse 31, letter C on your outline. The truth will set you free. Verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So here's what he said. Those that believed in there, if they're just kind of curiously believing, they're not saved. But if they abide in him and continue in his word, it's proof they're his disciples. How do we know somebody's saved today or not? Oh, they come to church. Oh, that's not proof. Lost people come to church. Oh, they're here on Wednesday night. That's the real faithful crew, right? No, that's not it either. I hate to tell you. Glad you're here, but I hate to tell you. Oh, well, they, they join the church. They're baptized. No. How do you know anybody's saved? If they continue, if there's a change, there's a difference. If, you're, if the old has become new, if you're different, if you abide in his word and continue in him, truly his disciples, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You know, there's nothing like the freedom we have in Jesus. No money can buy it. No status can obtain it. No works can earn it. And there's nothing like it. Freedom in Christ. Now, you will see John 8, 32 on libraries a lot. Some of you may have seen it before. That's the motto in many libraries that you walk in, and it says above on the building somewhere or a plaque somewhere in the library, it'll say, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they're implying that all knowledge is liberating. That's not what he means. That's out of context on the library. Sorry. It's not implying that all knowledge liberates you. That's what the libraries mean. Jesus meant spiritual truth liberates you, but not just all knowledge liberates you. 
spiritual knowledge does so. And in response to what he said, maybe the most ridiculous statement in verse 33 in the entire New Testament. Listen to what they responded. They answered him, we are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anybody. How is it that you say we will become free? Can you tell me a time in Israel's history they were not enslaved to somebody? Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, the Greeks, the Syrians, the Romans. You just go through their history. Why did he say we have never been enslaved to anybody? That's the most ridiculous statement in the New Testament. But maybe he was talking about spiritual freedom. Because in the religious leader's mind, they had never been enslaved as a child of Abraham. We've never sinned. We've never been enslaved to sin. What do you mean we can be set free? So most likely he's not talking politically here because it's really been ridiculous. He's probably talking spiritually. And Jesus answered, verse 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The religious leaders, the Pharisees, did not believe in the fall of man. The fall of man in Genesis 3, that because Adam sinned, everybody sinned, they didn't think they had sinned. They didn't think it applied to Jews. They didn't believe in the fall. They didn't think it applied to Jews. They really believed they were without sin. So as a child of Abraham with the covenant and they were circumcised, that, all of that together meant they were God's child and they were sinless. And so Jesus said, if you practice sin, you're a slave to it. I don't care what your nationality is. And a practice there, the word meant a continually habitual, not a slip up, a lapse and you slip up. It's a continual practicing of sin means you're a slave to sin. Verse 35, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you're free indeed. Now, I had a friend of mine in college who lived next door to me in the dorm. He was going into ministry also as a ministerial student. He was going to be a pastor of the church like I was going to be. And he believed because Jesus said in verse 36, if the Son sets you free, you're free indeed, then anything's permissible to you. He'd go out to the bars on the weekend and get drunk. I'm free. I'm free in Christ. And do what I want. Nobody can say anything's right or wrong for me. I'm free in Christ. I wouldn't want him to be my pastor, but that's not what Jesus meant. What he meant in verse 36 is you're not free to do anything you want. You're free to do what pleases God. And the more you please God, the more you want to do what pleases God. So he did not mean by that statement you're free to do whatever you want. And you can't be condemned for it. Verse 37, I know that you're offspring of Abraham. Yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you've heard from your father. Now let's go to letter D on the outline. We'll move along a little quickly here and wrap up. You are of your father the devil. It gets a lot more pointed now. Verse 39, they answered him, Abraham's our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works Abraham did. Jews believed that true children of Abraham did what Abraham did. Jesus said, if you, did what, if, you, if you were true children of Abraham, you'd do what he did. 
Verse 40, but now you seek to kill me, a man who's told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. Verse 41, you're doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. Oh, that's a slam against Jesus again, isn't it? We were not illegitimate. We know who our father was. You don't even know who your daddy is. We have one father, even God. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. And folks, there are a lot of people today that still can't bear to hear the word of God. And I like it. Her culture doesn't like it. It sometimes disagrees with what they want to do. Just saying. Verse 44, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. He is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Probably didn't go over real well when he says that they're religious leaders and their father is the devil. Now, verse 46, Jesus asks an interesting question. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Where, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you're not of God. Now, the Quran believed that Jesus was sinless. The Muslims believe Jesus was sinless, but they don't believe he was God. They believe he was a sinless man. They don't believe he was God. And that's what he's saying here. You, you don't believe I'm God. Now, interesting question, verse 46. I'll mention it quickly and we'll move on. I've had people ask before, how do you know Jesus tithed? We never have a record that says Jesus tithed. So should we be tithers? Well, Jesus taught tithing, Matthew 23, 23. That's a direct teaching. Do not leave the others undone, which is all the acts of the law. We'll continue those. But whenever he looks at the religious leaders and asks them, can any of you convict me of doing anything wrong? That included everything Jews were supposed to do. One of the big ones was tithing. The religious leaders tithed even the spices in their cabinets in the kitchen. They were very meticulous about it. So if he did not, with this question right here, then it said, ah, you don't tithe. But whenever he asked, which one of you can convict me of anything I've ever done wrong? They didn't answer. He fulfilled the law. He practiced the law, including all the commands there. And they couldn't find one he broke. He was a tither. The last one, letter E. Before Abraham was, I am. Verse 48. Then Jesus, the Jews answered, are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? Okay, here's the picture right quick. He accused them of the father being the devil. They were asking him who his father was. And he responded back by, well, your father's devil. And they're so angry, they come back with the, with the most vicious thing they can call him. Samaritan. 
The only time Jesus has ever called a Samaritan in the Gospels. He's called demon-possessed before, but that was even a greater slam to call him a Samaritan than to call him demon-possessed. Are we not right in saying you're a Samaritan? Boy, that had been a cutting. Those are fighting words to Jews. They hate them. And Jesus calmly responded, not in anger, verse 49. Jesus answered, I don't have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Verse 50, yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he's the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Verse 52, the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my words, he'll never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It's my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. Did you notice he always reflected back to the father's glory? Verse 55, but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, the Messiah. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not 50 years old. You've seen Abraham? You see, Jesus is thinking in a spiritual sense, and they're thinking earthly. They're going, you're mid-30s. Abraham died way back in the Old Testament. You didn't see Abraham. And then Jesus said, verse 58, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was... I am. He did not say before Abraham was, I was. Before Abraham was, past tense, I am present tense. Another declaration, I am God standing before you. The great I am. They got it this time. They got it really loud and clear. Look what they did in verse 59. They picked up stones to throw at him. He blasphemed in their minds. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Fascinating discourse tonight of Jesus and the religious leaders and telling them the truth about who they were, who he was as well. Questions or comments before we close? It's getting close time to wrap up. We know you need to get to choir, those who are here. But any questions or comments, if you want to raise them or come to the microphone, I'll be glad to respond to them. Anything at all. Brother Charlie, come and set me straight. <laughs> okay, yes, Bill. It, well, it was a good question. Is it illegal to stone someone inside the city limits? Not necessarily stoning. Uh, I mean, they, they, crucifying for sure you couldn't inside the city limits. Stoning, there never was really that much of, a, of an issue with it. They could stone them wherever they were, temple wherever they were, yeah. But now the, the crucifixion had to be outside the city gate when someone, yeah, was crucified. Yes, Charlie. This is uh, way too long a chapter. You're right, it is. I didn't write it though, Charlie, so there you go. <laughs> Too many questions. I noticed where this woman, uh, he forgave her and she left, but in the very next verse, all the men left and uh, 
it says he started talking to them mm-hmm. right after she left. Mm-hmm. Also, I, I, I got to thinking what he wrote in the sand, and he, he knew all their names, and he probably wrote, Joseph, where were you last Saturday night? <laughs> or Peter, what was you doing last Thursday? Probably so, yeah. <laughs> That's what I thought. Exactly right. That's true. <laughs> Sounds like it. <laughs> and how did he get ahead of me? Well, he just stood up right there. So, <laughs> Good question about the woman left and nobody was left there, but yet he started teaching on the lot of the world. There was probably a break between 11 and 12 where he, because he didn't go far because he's in the court of the women. They're in the temple area. So we know that's where he taught in the temple and the court of the women is where he spoke. It says he's at the treasury. So most likely went a few feet, few steps, whatever, began to teach again, and then the crowd gathered back. So, yeah, good question. So, yes, Terry. If the Jews felt like they never sinned, mm-hmm. why did they have a sacrifice? Yeah, good question. If the Jews felt like they never sinned, then why did they have a sacrifice? Jewish religious leaders didn't feel like they did. Now, those that, that followed the law, those that were meticulous about it, they didn't feel like, they didn't feel like a person was born in sin. Like, whereas we believe that we're born in sin, and, you know, we have a sin nature we, because of the fall in, in Genesis 3. They didn't believe that. They didn't believe the Genesis 3 passage, everybody has a sin nature, that you choose to sin. And many Jews did choose to sin because of those, they would have to need the sacrifices. But the religious leaders, especially the Pharisees, who were the, the highest of the religious leaders, they didn't think they did sin. Yeah, good. Yeah, so they didn't feel like they needed it. So they didn't believe in the, uh, in the, in the fall itself, that everybody was a sinner. So good. Good questions. All right. Yes, ma'am. It's a little different. You had the court of the Gentiles on the outer, outer court. And that was anybody who was non-Jewish. But then you went a little further is the court of the Gentiles. And then a little further, the court of the priests. And then, of course, the Holy of Holies. So the court of women was separate from the court of the Gentiles. It was, the, a, little more, it was a little more the inner circle. Jews had, could come to the Jewish, the women's court. But Gentiles had to stop there at the Gentile court. So. All right, we'll dismiss and wrap up and pick up with chapter 9. It's not a coincidence, by the way. Let me just kind of set this right quick. Not a coincidence that immediately after this, in chapter 9, Jesus heals a man born blind. Symbolic of who was blind? The people he had talked to in chapter 8. Not a coincidence. Immediately, he heals a blind person. So we'll talk about that next week. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's good to study it. And God, just dig into it. And, and we believe Jesus to be the great I am. We believe Jesus to be the Messiah, to be God in the flesh. That's our confession tonight. And upon that confession, direct us and empower us this week. Give us freedom this week in Christ. In his name we pray, amen. God bless you. See you Sunday.